Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. And just to update you, thanks in large part to many of you, uh, we've been able to purchase a new home in central Missoula. And there's a lot of work ahead of us when it comes to making another warehouse our church home. And you can continue to contribute to remodel and renovation funds at achurchbuilding.com. But we just want to express to you how grateful we are for your support. And we hope that this resource you're about to listen to will be a blessing for you as well. Uh, let's pray one uh, more time before we dive in. Lord Jesus, every uh, night when we uh, slip away, uh, you are reminding us that we need sleep and we need rest. Every morning when we wake up and we feel our tummies growl, we are reminded that we need food. And Lord, every Lord's Day when we gather, we are reminded that we need the fellowship of the saints and the proclamation of the gospel and that you have uh, provided abundantly for us to meet those needs through Jesus Christ. So we pray today as we look at your wisdom in the book of Proverbs that affects our hearts, that it changes how we understand our own wants and desires, our own perception, but more importantly, Lord, how it changes how we view you, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. We pray all this in your name, amen. So if you haven't already, you can open up your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 20. That's where we'll be today. And uh, summer's here. Many of us are taking road trips. And have you ever been on a road trip and you're cruising along and you're talking or listening to music and all of a sudden you pass a billboard or a blind corner and there you realize it was a highway patrol officer. And in that situation, they don't teach you this in driver's ed. It's not on your learner's permit exam, but we all do a quick four-step process. We tap our brakes, step one. Step two, we look at our speedometer. Step three and a half, we get mad at our spouse for telling us too late that there's a police officer there. Step three is that we look at the pace of cars around us and see if we're in the clear, if we are among a multitude of sinners or if we are the chief among them. Step four, regardless of your religious background, we all become prayer warriors, examining our rearview mirror, wondering what in the world is going to happen next. And in that situation, we all have this kind of emotional and physiological response. And the truth is, when we're on a road trip and we're going along in life, we hardly consider our speed until an external authority provokes in us a whole spectrum of emotions, from fear to anger to frustration to excuses. And this is a unique experience because the world tries to tell us that our hearts are our most faithful and loyal guide to managing our way through the world. And yet, in moments like this, we find how complicated and how unable our hearts are to be a meaningful guide which gives us any sort of confidence. Despite how confident you thought you were, despite what the speed limit was two hours ago when you set your cruise control, despite the conversation or the 80s ballad you were listening to that you were caught up in, it took so very little for everything you thought you knew to be challenged. You'd be filled with doubt, anger, and uncertainty. If you want to confirm this all the more, just watch people next time you go to an airport and you watch people going through the TSA line. Everyone gets put through the same maze of, which Missoula has like miles of mazes and there's like six people in the airport. Um, and, And so while you're standing in this maze, you're there and you're reading signs. What are these signs telling you? 
They're telling you exactly what you need to do to get through security. It's literally giving you the answers to the test before you get to that point. And then you get out of the lines, and you get to the big conveyor belt, and the whole while, you've probably been listening to some overhead announcement on repeat saying, please be sure to take off your shoes and put your liquids in the bag. And so you get there, and you start to do that, and they have, just for your convenience, a friendly, warm, welcoming TSA officer who says, put your shoes on the belt, make sure your laptop and other small electronic devices are in its own tray and liquids are separate from your carry-on bag. Make sure you've removed any watches or belts and you have nothing in your pockets. And so you're like, all right, you check your pockets, you make sure nothing's there, you put it there, you're hearing it, you're remembering the signs, you're listening to the TSA officer, and you are full of all that boom swagger, and you walk right up to the big uh, uh, metal detector or that machine that like <laughs> breathes on you, and there's another TSA agent, and what do they say? Do you have anything in your pockets? And what does everyone do? You've just spent the last 45 minutes of your life thinking of that one thing to do. And that one challenge, that one challenge from outside of you causes you to question everything. You see, when an authority begins to examine you, we are all prone to a variety of feelings in that moment. And our passage today in Proverbs chapter 20 is all about this external examination of your heart. But instead of being a metal detector or a TSA agent or a highway patrolman, the one who is examining your heart is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the one who sees all things. And yet, what Solomon is doing in God's wisdom today is he wants to give you confidence. He wants to come alongside your conflicted heart, your heart which is both confident and also conflicted, and he wants to tell you what it looks like to withstand that examination, but also to live in freedom, seeing how God sees us through the lens of the gospel. And what we're going to see today is this, is that the God who sees our hearts is the solution to the fears of our hearts. We love our hearts, but we know and you know that our hearts are broken, conflicted, and confused. And so what do we do when we're frustrated with ourselves? Well, we look to the God who created us and who has set a plan to redeem us, save us from ourselves through Jesus Christ. And we're seeing this in three pictures today. In one sense, what we're going to see is kind of a crime scene. Solomon's going to lay out an argument, and that's going to be our first few verses, it's going to be verses two through seven, and in that we're going to see the condemnation of our heart. In one sense, we're going to see the facts of the case presented to us. And then in verses eight through 12, we're going to, he's not going to turn to a judge to give a verdict. He's actually going to turn to you. In light of everything you've just encountered, what is the conclusion you come to about your heart? And then lastly, by reflecting on verse 8 and looking at the scope of the gospel, we are going to see the confidence of our hearts. The condemnation, the conclusion, and the confidence of our hearts. So let's read again Proverbs 20, verses 2 through 7. The terror of a king is like the growling of a lion. Whoever provokes him to anger forfeits his life. It is an honor for a man to keep aloof from strife, but every fool will be quarreling. The sluggard does not plow in the autumn. He will seek at harvest and have nothing. The purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. 
Many a man proclaims his own steadfast love, but a faithful man who can find the righteous who walks in integrity. Blessed are his children after him. So here we begin to see our first point today, which is the condemnation of our hearts. And we see in, uh, this passage is kind of split up into two sections, verses 2 through 7, verses 8 through 12. And there's a similar pattern, if you'll notice, that Solomon has in each. In verse 2 and in verse 8, he talks about this king who is examining, this king who is judging, this king who is responding. But then there's always these following verses that get at either the heart of the king's subjects or the action of the king's subjects or people. And we see this in verse 2 where he compares the terror and anger of a king to a growling lion. And if you don't get that word picture, he clarifies it for you. He says, whoever does this forfeits, throws away, abandons his life. And when Solomon is talking about the terror of a king, he's not talking about this quick-tempered king who lacks self-control and needs to be talked off of a ledge. When most of the time, when Solomon is talking about the king in Proverbs, he's assuming a good king. He himself is a king and desires to be a king, not outside of God's wisdom, but under God's wisdom. In Proverbs chapter 16, he gives us a glimpse into how kings ought to live. And this is what he says in chapter 16, verse 12, speaking of the king's rule and the response to evil. It is an abomination to kings to do evil, for the throne is established by righteousness. And so what he's saying here is this anger, this terror of the king is a good thing if you're on the good side of the king. This king is charged to protect his people, to keep them safe from corruption and external threats and internal conspiracies. It is a good king who punishes those who do evil in order to protect those who do good. And the justice of this king is likened to a growling, roaring lion. A few things in our life kind of spark an awe and fearfulness as a lion. It's folklore, it is royal, it is strong, it is intimidating, it's to be feared. So much so that if you're one foolish enough to provoke this kind of king, you're one who is going to forfeit his life. You have a better chance of fighting a lion as you do Surviving the wrath of a king when you have provoked him. So how does Solomon want you to live in light of this lion king? Well, it should be obvious. Don't provoke the king. But this is where our hearts begin to show their complicated natures. It's easy for us to say, dang it, we won a war to where we have no king anymore. I can't provoke a king if I don't have a king. But we could even pull that in and, you know, draw these parallels to our own government and say, you know what, we have rulers, and I've done a pretty good job obeying those rulers. I've never been called to court. Maybe you've never gotten a speeding ticket. You've never embezzled so far in Netflix's slew of true crime documentaries. None of you have had one made about your life. You're doing pretty well. You stand on the right side of the rulers. You have not provoked the king. This idea of false confidence is something that actually is stretched even into the realm of religion. Most of Americans are conflicted as to whether a God exists or if he, if whether he exists or whether he does not exist. And yet, most people who do affirm that a God exists or even affirm the possibility that a God exists, 
say that if that God exists, or if he were to exist, he would be pleased with me. I am generally a good person. I have done nothing with which to provoke God's anger. In fact, it's almost as foreign to us to worry about provoking God's wrath as it is for us in Montana to worry about encountering an African lion. It seems so distant, so outlandish. Of course we please the king. But what's interesting is that immediately after speaking of the king's justice in verse 2, Solomon seems to go into a disconnected uh, slew of Proverbs in verses 3 through 7. And it's almost like he's left the idea of justice because as we've seen, as the book of Proverbs gets on, it becomes more and more uh, filled with one-liners until we get closer to the end and then the writing becomes more concentric again. So we think maybe, you know, Solomon is just giving his machine gun approach to Proverbs at this point in time. But then we get to verse 8. And in verse 8, he brings back this theme of the king who sees and judges when he says this, a king who sits on the throne of judgment winnows all evil with his eyes. In other words, what Solomon is doing in these in-between verses is directly connected to the judgment of this king. And what he's actually beginning to do is he's beginning to provide a series of tests for the heart. Jesus himself did this in the Gospel of Matthew when he encountered the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were those who thought they had done nothing to provoke God as king. They kept God's laws so wonderfully, so immaculately, that God had to accept them on the basis of their works. They were the examples that everyone were to follow. They were the goody-two-shoes par excellence. If you wanted to be saved, you had to have the confidence of the Pharisees. But what Jesus does is he gets behind their confidence by questioning their hearts. I've never murdered someone, says the Pharisee. But Jesus says, but have you ever hated someone in your heart? To have hated someone in your heart is to have murdered them in your heart and is to have broken the law of God. You have provoked the king. I've never slept with anyone who is not my spouse. But Jesus says, but have you ever lusted after someone in your heart? To have lusted is to have committed adultery in your heart, is to have broken the law of God, is to have provoked the king. And Jesus, who is the wisdom of God incarnate, the second person of the Trinity, fully God and fully man, he is borrowing from Solomon this same level of examination. For after causing us to consider how we provoke a king, he gives us three tests. He says, you, look at your own heart. And we begin to see these tests in Proverbs 16, 12. Nope, I'm in the wrong spot. Excuse me, in Proverbs uh, 20, verse 3. It says this. It is an honor for man to keep aloof from strife, but every fool will be quarreling. And so here we see that he immediately comes and he says, if you want to please the king, If you want to be honorable before the king, don't get into dumb arguments. Don't quarrel. He says, if you want to have never provoked the king, don't get into an argument because your heart is leading you in false passions. We love in our culture 
to get into arguments because we, this is kind of drawing back to last week. We are in a word-driven culture. It seems that as long as conflicts don't take up fisticuffs, we're okay. <laughs> as long as we're just battling with our words, it seems to be acceptable. But here he's after the heart of a quarreler. And he says, in your sinful flesh, you will strive to vindicate yourself by your words, involving yourself in quarrels which you have no business to be in. Quarrels which if you were simply to be humble. Quarrels in which you were simply to repent. They would go away. Charles Hodges, an old pastor, said this. He said that uh, a world in sin is always a world in strife. We are prone to want to quarrel with others. There are reasonable, good arguments to get into. There are hard conversations to have. And yet, if you just think back on your last argument... Was the root of your quarrel to be loving to this person? Or was the root of this quarrel to be right? To justify yourself? To prove someone wrong? Or was it to win them to the grace of God? It provokes the king. Next, look at Proverbs 2 verse 4. You think you passed that test? Here's another one. The sluggard does not plow in the autumn. He will seek at harvest and have nothing. You might have never robbed a bank. Good for you. But have you robbed God of his time? Have you been slothful? Have you been lazy? As part of the rhythm in the Middle East, this agrarian culture, there are seasons of sowing and seasons of reaping. And the word here translated as autumn in verse 4 is translated for the benefit of our Western world. But in uh, Hebrew, it just means winter. That was when they sowed in the Middle East. And winter, though not as severe as it is here in Montana was the coldest and rainiest season of their year. It was the season where those who lived in ancient Palestine, the last thing they wanted to do was to go outside and work. It was easier, it was more comfortable to stay inside and to assume that someone else would provide for you. And here's a heart which is not only slothful, but it's entitled. It thinks it can live the way it wants to and get bailed out when the moment of crisis comes by the mercy of another without taking any sort of action on their own. It is the one who the apostle James speaks of in James chapter four, verse 17, where he says this, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. You have provoked the king. Have you ever not repented when you should have repented? Have you ever made a joke when you shouldn't have made a joke? Have you ever not asked for forgiveness when you ought to have asked for forgiveness? Have you ever not done when you should have done? You have provoked the king. And while these first two tests get at the external actions, Solomon's not done pressing into our heart. Because in his next two, he goes to our internal desires. Look at verses five and six. The purpose of a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. Many a man proclaims his own steadfast love, but a faithful man who can find. And so these two verses, when viewed together, is ultimately getting at the integrity of one's heart. He says, first, the desires of your heart are so deep, so powerful, and so persuasive, and yet they are hard for you to grasp. 
It's hard for you to understand. This is the challenge of thoughtfulness we looked at last week, right? There are times in my life, this week was one of them, where I was anxious. And I could tell you all of the things that made me anxious. And yet I wrestled saying, what is it I'm anxious about? What is it that I actually fear? What is my heart refusing to see in Jesus instead thinking that I can solve? And you want to know the answer? I couldn't figure it out. I couldn't understand the fickleness of my heart, and yet I knew my heart was burdened. And there are other times where we might know the answer, but we don't want to take time to find out the answer. There are times where we know what we want, where we want the new gadget, the new car, the nice home, but we don't want to stop and put in the work of examining our hearts. But the wise man draws it out. Our hearts are hard to understand. But it gets worse. Because when verse 6 says your hearts are hard to understand, or verse 5 says your hearts are hard to understand, verse 6 says even when you understand your hearts, it's hard to live in light of it. <laughs> Look at what verse 6 says. Many a man proclaims his own steadfast love, but a faithful man who can find. Isn't this a dilemma? Man, if only I knew what was in my heart, I'd be wise. You do the work, you find what's in your heart, and you say, I want to lose weight to have a body that can work and honor God. And then nachos just show up at your door. And you eat them. You know what is steadfast love. You know what it is you want. You know what you desire, and yet your life contradicts your deepest desire. You want to be a selfless spouse who loves your spouse like Jesus loves us but our actions show otherwise. You want deeply to share the gospel with those around you, but your actions show it's hard to do that. It's easy to proclaim your steadfast love, your commitment to wanting to follow Jesus, to obeying and pursuing righteousness, but who is faithful to do that? In Augustine's biography, he talked about how in his early years, he desired the intellectual merits of Christianity as this worldview. He desired to think these philosophical thoughts. He desired, knowing his heart, to be free from the condemnation he knew his wicked heart desired. He, in fact, says that he used to steal fruit off of trees, not because he needed to eat, but because he wanted to steal. He knew his heart was broken. And yet when he wanted to come to God for redemption, he realized that though he wanted it, his heart was far from God. He couldn't displace his desire for evil. Specifically, he had no affection for Jesus and he was consumed by lust for women. How many of you have such a conflicted heart? Wanting to follow God, wanting to change but conflicted that despite that want, you feel you cannot do. And as hard as that is, Solomon is continuing to stick his finger in it and saying, you have provoked the king. You know what you should do. You know what is right. And yet you are not faithful to do it. We have in our conflicted hearts provoked the lion king and his terror. And at this point, Solomon wants us to cry out, who is faithful? Who is the one who walks 
in righteousness. And he answers this cry in Proverbs 20, verse 7. The righteous who walks in his integrity, blessed are his children after him. Here is the faithful man, the one who is righteous. Now remember, righteousness is a big word with a bunch of things going on in it. Righteousness does not simply equal morality. Even though those who walk in righteousness act in a way that is good and pleasing, it is good and pleasing because righteous action is based off the righteous God. Morality does not exist as something in our world, morality exists as it's tied to the God who is righteous. We act righteously because we've been saved by the God who is righteous. And notice, in contrast to all of the conflicted confidence there are in the verses above, the confidence that is for the righteous man. It is secure even for his children. He walks securely in a world which challenges the hopes of your hearts. This is wonderful, except that what has happened in verses 6, 5, and I can't count backwards, 6, 5, 4, and 3, is that we have realized one thing. We are not the righteous one. We are not the faithful ones. We stand under a problem. Just like when we encounter the cop on the interstate, we reasonably gather the information that has present, been presented against us, and we see where we stand in relationship to this king, and all of this, all of this evidence, the evidence of your heart, is brought to bear in verses 8 through 12, where Solomon is calling you to make a declaration of where your heart stands in relationship to this king. This is verses 8 through 12. A king who sits on the throne of judgment winnows all evil with his eyes. Who can say, I have made my heart pure? I am clean from my sin. Unequal weights and unequal measures are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Even a child makes himself known by his acts, by whether his conduct is pure and upright, the hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made them both. Here's our second point this morning the conclusion of our hearts. So here he calls you to examine your heart before God who winnows all evil before his eyes. And that winnowing, it's this agricultural term of separating kind of the, the husk from the wheat and the chaff from the fruit. Solomon's point is that one day the God, the just king, the Lord of lords will sit on his throne and he will separate the good from the bad, the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the chaff, the light from the dark. What does that mean for you? No one eats meat that's a little bit spoiled because Jesus says in James to have broken one of the commands, you should have broken all of the commands. After a similar sort of introspection, the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 17 says this, thinking about his own heart. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. You see, we, what we just saw in verses five and six is that we cannot comprehensively know our hearts. 
we can't understand the crevasses of our unique oddities and fears. But God can. God sees all. The all-seeing, all-hearing judge sees everything and he is righteous to treat it for exactly what it is. And it's in light of this that the Apostle Paul cries out in Romans chapter 7, showing this conflicted heart. We know enough about our hearts to know our hearts have a problem before a God like this. Verses 18 through 24. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but the sin who dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Brothers and sisters, if you can't make it through a TSA line without double-checking your pockets, if you can't handle the question from your wife of, did you forget my birthday without sweating underneath the collar, then imagine what it will be like to stand before God who sees everything in your heart. And what will your confidence be? In the words of Solomon, who can say, I have made my heart pure and I am clean from sin? Solomon, not being done yet, in case you are unconvinced, continues. He gives two other examples, verses 10 and 11. Unequal weights and unequal measures are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Even a child makes himself known by his acts, by whether his conduct is pure and upright In other words, if God sees every transaction in the business sphere, if he sees every weight and measure which the salesman has skewed and lightened or made heavier in order to rob his customers, if God sees every transaction like that, if you, as a parent, or as an individual who watched my little brood of sinners run around here after church, are able to discern the hearts of children by gauging the purity of their actions, how much more is the all-seeing King of kings, Lord of lords, going to examine your hearts? How much more will he find what you yourself are even unaware of in the depths of your sin? We were looking at this text in staff meeting today. Uh, One of our pastors, I'll leave you to decide who it would be, uh, told the story of him as a six-year-old shoplifting, like a normal six-year-old would do. And uh, he saw this candy in the store. He wanted it. He desired it. Looked at his situation, grabbed it, pocketed it, walked out, pretty confident that he had passed the exam. But then he described as he was getting to the door a hand that came and placed itself on his shoulder, and immediately he went cold. <laughs> His gut had that sinking feeling because he knew two things. One, he was guilty. And two, he had just been caught. Each and every one of us, if standing in our sin, will be caught by the judgment of God 
and none of us will have the confidence to say, I am innocent. And yet what Proverbs is doing here, what wisdom beforehand is offering you is the ability to feel that hand now so that you might be able to do something about it. That you might be able to find relief not by saying I have done no wrong, but by finding a solution to your sin in another way. In 1 Kings chapter 18, Solomon, the same Solomon who's writing Proverbs chapter 20, has just finished building the temple, this place where God is going to come and physically dwell in the midst of his people. It is a wonderful prayer. If you have never read Solomon's prayer in 1 Kings 8, go and do that today uh, and know that God hears your prayers through Jesus Christ. That's the wonderful takeaway of that chapter. But at the end, Solomon begins to say and look at his people and he's like, these people are going to sin. These people are going to provoke the king. These people are going to be tempted to worship other gods and to extort one another and to use, uh, use measures and weights that are skewed and twisted. And Solomon prays for the hope of Israel in that time. And look at what he says in 1 Kings 8, verses uh, 46 through 53. If they sin against you, for there is not one who does not sin, and you are angry with them, and give them to an enemy, so they're carried away captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near, removed from the presence of God. Yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive, and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying, we have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly, And if they repent with all their mind and with all their heart in the land of their enemies who carried them captive and pray to to you towards their land which you gave to their fathers, the city you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then hear in heaven your dwelling place their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions they have committed against you and grant them compassion in the sight of those who carried them captive, that they may have compassion on them, for they are your people, your heritage, which you brought out of Egypt in the midst of an iron furnace. Let your eyes be open to the plea of your servant and to the plea of your people Israel, giving ear to them whenever they call to you. For you, So why would God hear? Why would God hear Israel? Here Solomon is answering that. For you separated them from among the peoples of the earth to be your heritage, as you declared through Moses, your servant, when you brought our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord, our God. What is Solomon's hope that God would hear when we have gone far away? What would Solomon hope in when people have acted unrighteously and shown no steadfast love? Solomon would hope in the righteous steadfastness of the God who has already promised to save, to save those who come back. How might you be delivered from this God when you are conflicted in your heart? It's by doing something which makes no sense apart from the gospel. And it is to turn back to the very thing we fear. It is to go back to God in the hopes that he will solve in his righteousness the problem of our unrighteousness. It is God who will bring to us Proverbs 20 verse 7. Where does he bring us this righteousness? It's foreshadowed in the book of Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18, where, he, where the prophet says this, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, you're as good as dead.
That's my reasoning. If my kids sin against me, I say, come, let us reason together. You done broke the vase. (laughs) But that's not what he says. Look at the reason of God. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become white as wool. God made a promise to a people with conflicted hearts that one day he would cleanse them. One day he would finally and fully clean those unable to clean themselves, despite like Lady Macbeth, how often you wash your hands and try to find confidence. Paul, after we'd been brought into the turmoil of his heart, reaches a conclusion, which is the solution to Isaiah's promise, where he says this, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. What delivers us in the midst of our conflicted hearts? Jesus and only Jesus. Jesus is the true king, the king who sees all things, the king who sees the depravity of your heart and yet chooses to die for those who stand opposed to him. Jesus who comes to those who have no confidence and he offers by merit of his perfect work confidence and peace. And here we have our final point today the confidence of our hearts. If you want confidence in life, even when our hearts will always wrestle with doubt, the greatest place to stand is to stand in Jesus. When we do the work of actually examining our hearts, we find they are a terrible place. And because of that, we might think that if we actually want to understand our hearts, we just need to become really like these verbal abusers of our own hearts, where every day we wake up and we stare ourselves in the mirror and we quote scripture like, miserable and wretched man are you. (laughs) You vile and incompetent creature. And you know what? That's true. But something wonderful happens in salvation where Jesus looks at the hearts that we should hate and Jesus loves them. He loves them by dying for them, by cleansing them, by promising to redeem them. Look at how Jesus speaks of our heart. Or Paul, speaking of the peace we have with Jesus in Romans 5, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, since we have been justified, that is the resolution of Proverbs 20, verse 7, by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of glory. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in our conflicted hearts. We rejoice in our weaknesses, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Why? Think of what Solomon contrasts in Proverbs 20 verse 9. Who can cleanse themselves in their heart from their sin? But look here at Romans 5. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given, that is to say, you did nothing to earn it, by grace. Jesus, when we come in faith and repentance, 
takes our conflicted and condemned hearts and gives us confidence not in our own footing, but in the footing of Jesus Christ. Here is confidence. Confidence in life that cannot be shaken. You see, we often have this confusing situation where our lives are kind of like, uh, I don't know if you in philosophy 101 or on YouTube University have encountered Schrodinger's box, Schrodinger's cat. And so this thought experiment, right, where there's this cat in a box. And you could not open the box. And if you don't open the box, there's a reality in which that cat is alive and a reality in which that cat is dead. But if you open that box, one of those realities dies. If you open the box and the cat is dead, the question is, did you kill the cat? Man, how many of us know our hearts and we are terrified to open the box to see what's inside for fear that we might find doubt, for fear that we might find self-confidence, for fear that we understand at best our hopes are fragile and at worst they are a long shot. And if we were to open that box and find the reality of our hearts, we would realize it kills any confidence we have for hope, for love, for joy, and for peace. And so we distract ourselves, we busy ourselves, we look anywhere but in for fear of what we'll find. But then there are others in here. You ripped open the box. You saw what's inside. And now you're crushed with the reality of your brokenness. You feel that maybe you cannot be loved, that you are beyond repair, and that there is no hope for you. But here is confidence for our conflicted hearts. Here's the gospel of Jesus, which says we can see it all in clarity and know that if we come but come in Christ, we stand as the righteous man walking in his integrity. Uh, John Bunyan, the old Puritan pastor, wrote Pilgrim's Progress says this, to you who are wondering, do I open the box? Do I come to Christ? What is next? Consider his encouragement. And if Satan meets you and asks, where are you going? Tell him you are maimed and you are going to the Lord Jesus. If he throws at you your own unworthiness, tell him that even as the sick seek the physician, As he that has broken bones seeks him that can set them, so you are going to Jesus Christ for cure and for healing for your sin-sick soul. Up, up, sinner. Be of good cheer. Christ came to save the unworthy ones. Be not faithless, but believe. Do you want this confidence? Do you want this assurance? Do you want all the terror of the good king to be directed in your defense instead of directed towards your damnation? Then come to Jesus. And here's this wonderful truth. We are condemned because we are unrighteous and saved by the unrighteousness of Jesus, or by the righteousness, excuse me, heretical check, by the righteousness of Jesus. (laughs) But when Jesus gives us his righteousness, He enables us to put aside unrighteousness. Look at Romans 6, verses 17 through 18. 
But thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin, have become obedient, where? From the heart, to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves, wonderful, embonded slaves to Jesus Christ, slaves to righteousness. You see, those who come to Christ burdened by their sin only to turn back to sin have not experienced the freedom of Jesus or his righteousness. But those who come to Christ in our conflicted hearts and see his beauty and experience his salvation and say, today I have the privilege of by grace walking with my Savior. There are riches. There is grace. There is mercy. Augustine, when he finally realized that this was his reality, that Christ died for sinners, He said, I am no longer in need to be more certain of you, but only at need to be more steadfast in you. The certainty of knowing we stand with confidence before the king gives us ground to be more and more steadfast, to look at the hope of Proverbs 20, verse 7, and to strive to walk integrity of our salvation. And yet we live in a broken world which will question and cause you to consider weaknesses at every turn. So what do you do when Christ has saved your heart and yet he has not finally and fully brought us to a new heaven and new earth where all of our complications are removed? We seek by wisdom to bring our hearts to God through Jesus Christ. To look at Proverbs 20 and to see the king through the eyes of grace. 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 5 says this. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. How do we fix our conflicted hearts? We bring them to God and Jesus and we trust that in that moment is relief. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we know the fickleness of our flesh. We know the conflicts of our desires. We know the complications of our wants and of our sins and of our hopes. But in a staggering way, Lord, you have promised to make us know Christ more intimately. You have promised to answer the question of the faithless one by providing your son as the faithful one who gives us his righteousness and saves us from the wrath of God. So Lord Jesus, I pray that this gives us confidence when our hearts are conflicted that we know where we stand and knowing where we stand dictates how we act. Lord Jesus, those are words that just came out, but those are words that shape the rest of our following of you. Help us to believe it. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.